Welcome back to Historical Homos, the world's only no-fucks-given guide to queer history. Nous sommes de retour en France dans cette émission, cette fois-ci à la fin de l'Ancien Régime, connu pour son élégance... Um, brother, brother, let's try it in English, okay? Uh, it's hard enough to follow as it is. <laughs> I'm so sorry, the languages are just so entwined in my mind. If you had my training, you'd understand the feeling. I do, and better. Queerly beloved, we are gathered here today We are gathered here today once more in my favorite century to examine the life, the limitless luxury, and yes, the labial exploits of Mademoiselle Françoise Rocourt, star of the Paris stage and a renowned rug muncher in her own day. La Rocourt saw regimes rise and fall, from the horny goatweed King Louis XV himself to the Napoleonic chode. Through it all, she lived a life of unrepentant scandal, dominating the stage of the Comédie Française and securing the bag from the admiring nobleman who fawned over her dès le début, from her debut. All while she openly, giddily, and quite bravely engaged in a series of lesbian affairs with the public's greedy, willing knowledge. Now, strap yourself in and or on, and let's dive into the pure, the rafraîchissant, the éblouissant springs of Parisian lesbianism. Because the clitoris water is what? Human, Human temperature. temperature. <laughs> Take another rewrite through our history Celebrate ourselves tonight And cover all the things that's still a mystery Cause if you think you know you don't know Around the world we go, 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 go Time to blow your mind with historical homos I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this one. You know I love this century, Lucy. How are you? Um, I'm very excited for this too, just because I can probably prove that I have a better French accent than you for do. For the listeners, I think what's interesting is that Lucy did have a French boyfriend. So she, I freely admit that she does speak French with a sort of carefree, sort of I'm getting my dick sucked every week attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. However, before this episode began, she <laughs> stared into my eyes with the sad puppy dog fear and said, you're not going to make me read in French, right? So I think it's very important that we clarify that, yes, while Lucy sounds wonderful in French, she is fully, like not even as a joke, fully illiterate. She cannot read. She cannot write. And I, I can. can read. And I can. And I think that that means something. That should go for something. Listen, just because you can read Voltaire in French like a fucking nerd doesn't mean I don't speak better French than you. I speak like colloquial French. You have to think about your words. So I just like, you know, I live it. I breathe it. C'est dans moi, quoi. C'est dans l'âme. C'est dans mon âme aussi. Je parle très fluidement, très couramment. Everyone thinks so. Now You can't see my face, but I'm cackling. <laughs> Pathetic. 
<laughs> now, the other thing that I think is relevant to the 18th century for us, this brother-sister duo to the stars, is the story of um, Madame du Châtelet, who was one of my, you know, some people are obsessed with like rock stars or pop stars. I was obsessed mm -hmm. as a teenager with an 18th century marquise who was Voltaire's mistress as well as a scientist and mathematician and overall genius in her own right. So, so me. <laughs> so when I got to uh, college essay writing time, I decided that I would write my college essay about Madame du Châtelet and my respect for what she called her intellectual ambition. And I, I told my mom about this essay. I gave it to her to read. Of course, I wanted her to read it. And she came in and she was, I, I had been out for one year at this time as a active homosexual. And she came into my room <laughs> totally. and was like, I love it, Bash, but I just, I don't understand why you wouldn't write about being gay. I mean, the diversity quotient there is, is a shoe in for schools like Harvard and Yale and blah, 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 which I famously, and got, wait, which I famously so got waitlisted at. And, and I, I thought you didn't get into Yale at all. I was waitlisted. Okay. okay, but so you didn't get in. I'm still on the wait. I'm still waiting. <laughs> You're still... I'm still waiting okay, for a so... response. But I, I looked at her dead in the eyes and I was like, um, mom, my college essay is about an 18th century French aristocratic woman diva. I think they'll know that I'm gay. Okay, so before we begin our episode, we of course have to do our sacrifice. I have my uh, giant Apollo head vase that I like to place my sacrifice in. Lucy, do you have a, a receptacle, a vessel? Uh, no, but <laughs> I... That, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, technically mine is inside another vessel. I'll show you. Okay. So today I'm sacrificing um, this clit stimulator that was <laughs> i got as part of a buy one get one free um and this is not the one that is of good quality and almost says like burn my clit off or you know done things that are it just sucks way too hard it's not like the good one i have so wow i'm i'm and it has this little like almost pink well it has this pink like case that it puts in so you can you know, obviously carry it privately in your handbag. It seems like that is both something that you need to get rid of and yeah. also um, that the that would really be pleasing to the gods. I yeah, I think it's also very appropriate for this episode. I, I've i started to think like I, I should really be sacrificing something gay every for each mm. of these episodes because otherwise rabbit god and all the other gay gods are not going to really be listening. So you should put your life on the line. I thought, well, I, it's funny you say that because my first thought was that I would um, sacrifice my entire prescription bottle of prep. So that, <laughs> <laughs> which given my hoe ass ways um <laughs> could literally That's... kill me. But given that I need that and I'm extremely grateful to have it, I thought instead that I would do something equally sort of life-threatening, which is sacrifice one of the new pens that I bought yesterday at <laughs> McNally Jackson. They're the beautiful, like really beautifully colored Le Pen um, ones, you know, like the little markers. So I am sacrificing the red one, um, which I use a lot. And I will, I, the gods need it more than I do. So may, may we have a blessed episode, gay gods. Before we get into act one, I want to start with a little bit of context for people who don't know that much about this time period. So, so me. Right, people like you. 
So the 18th century in France is fucking fabulous. It's the era of the Enlightenment. People are finally figuring out math and science and map and all sorts of, of big <laughs> subject. They, it, it is Math the is era hard. of the philosophes, the, the French word for philosophers, who are basically refer to any sort of lettered men and women, learned men and women who study subjects in earnest. It's also a century of constant war uh, from, the, Sick. from the very beginning when Louis XIV croaked all the way to the end when you have the French Revolution and eventually the rise of Napoleon. It is... Hey, here's a question. Of course, sister. Thanks, brother. How many Louis did this span? Did did span this time? <laughs> <laughs> well, we start the century with Louis the Fourteenth, who dies in seventeen fifteen, okay. and his. I think both his son and his grandson died before him. So his great grandson <laughs> Louis the Fifteenth, who would become Louis the Fifteenth, then technically started reigning, but it was under a regent. And Louis the Fifteenth then had a very long reign after that, and then it went to Louis the Sixteenth, um, and then Louis the Seventeenth was Marie Antoinette's son, who I think just got super murdered or forgotten, um, and then there was a Louis the Eighteenth eventually who came back when the monarchy came back after Napoleon was uh, removed. Got it. So there's okay. eighteen Louis in in the in the French dynasty. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's funny how we like only really pay attention to that one. Well, or at least me with that Sofia Coppola movie. Oh yeah, well that's Louis the Sixteenth, the little freak weirdo who is into locks and not having sex. Locks like salmon? <laughs> no, not the not that locks like keys and locks. <laughs> like he was into locks. Oh. <laughs> so we'll leave and that. Math, we'll leave. Maybe. We'll, ta we'll table that <laughs> okay. for now. Great. Now, by the time our heroine arrives on the stage, literally, in Paris, it's the 1770s. Louis XV is still alive. He done been reigning for a long time, kind of badly. Wow, I just spit a lot on my microphone. And then okay. in the 1780s, Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI are kind of at the height of their power before they're going to fall spectacularly. And there's also this full-blown sexual libertine revolution bubbling alongside the political enlightenment driven one and there's all sorts of fabulous words for queer people at the time well fabulous they're extremely um pejorative but <laughs> words like bougre sodomite were used for gay men so bougre is the french version of the english oh. bugger for women we also had tribade and just can i can i say one yeah sure Putain. Putain, a classic, which literally just means, what does it mean, Lucy? Fuck. Putain, no, putain means whore, actually, specifically. Um, Put means whore. Putain also means oh, putain, whore. putain, merde. Lucy? Fuck putain shit. Putain in the 18th century means whore. People use it as an expletive on its own nowadays. Please don't fight me on this. Okay, I'm I'm not going to fight you, but I'm just saying in the world that we live in now, where people actually speak French, not like this joke of a French <laughs> that you're putting in front of me, people say putain is like a fuck. That's how you would say it. Yes, it's like, but oh, the word fuck. originally means a prostitute. It refers to a whore. Gosh, that's neither here nor there. The other words we have for lesbian that are kind of confusing are anandrine, which comes from the ancient Greek meaning like without men. Without men. 
<laughs> you got it. And <laughs> Hermaphrodite, which is used more about men, I believe. But that was sort of a catch-all for anyone who was crossing gender boundaries. Now, relevant to our story today, in these two decades, the 70s and the 80s, there's also this absolute craze for lesbianism. Women be fucking. Like, it's happening. <laughs> it's highly publicized. There's this whole pamphlet and gazette and newspaper culture, which is kind of like an early version of tabloids and, and, and gossip rags that are circulating, <laughs> talking about who's stripping who and who left whose girlfriend. It's very real L word vibes. And Wait, do you remember when you were a child and you literally made a gazette for the um, village that we lived in of trying to find all of the drama, of which there was a lot. Yeah. And it there was, was called, only like, there was only one edition. Le Poule. Well, yeah, because there was only one. There were only like the same problems in the village over and over again. People, people be stealing my chickens. <laughs> it it probably would have helped if there was more about lesbian sex in it, actually, for for the circulation. I agree. Now, there's also evidence that people are writing letters to one another, giving each other the news. So anyone who is a philosophe or a learned person is a part of this republic, what's called by historians, the Republic of Letters, which extends all around the world, because this is, of course, also the beginning of the age of colonialism. Well, not the beginning, but the, the ramping up of the age of colonialism, imperialism, all these big European powers are out there trying to take over the world. So when people talk about women like Françoise Rocourt, this actress who we're going to get into, they, that news about her lesbian exploits is actually spreading all over the world, which is fascinating. So people are talking about homosexuality on, on a scale that they never have before, thanks to this letter writing culture, the printing press, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Interesting. So basically what you're saying is like everything that you've ever talked about on this podcast before this time was actually a lie because no one was actually talking about gay stuff <laughs> until now. Uh, Just clarifying. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Now, uh, I think I have, I think I translated this. This is a little introduction to Mademoiselle Recourt. And I think we'll have Lucy read this. This is written by, actually, I believe it's uh, one of the Grimm brothers. So the, the guys who wrote the fairy tales eventually, they lived I, in... I know who they are. They lived in Paris for a long time. And one of their sources that they passed down to us is the Correspondance Littéraire, which is which has all of these like fun gossip tidbits about what was going on in Paris, what shows everyone was going to, blah, blah, blah. So this is about the heroine of our story. i just like um, the listeners to know that Bash and I, of course, have an outline. And as he was uh, saying, I'm about to read this, he increased the text size, the font size on this a lot, just so I'd be able to read it. Um, so I'm blind. That's because I take care of you, sister. Thank, brother. Okay. Me, me, ma, ma, mo. <laughs> Sorry. There exists, it is said, a society known by the name of the Lodge of Lesbos, but their assemblies are mysterious. There, one is initiated into all secrets, which Juvenal describes so frankly and naively at, in his 16th century satire, i.e. girls banging each other. It is said that our superb Galatée, Mademoiselle Racourt, is one of the chief priestesses of the temple. Source correspondant littéraire. 
Yeah, you guys see what I mean. She literally can't read. Thank you, Lucy. That was wonderful. <laughs> no problem. Now, we're ready to get started. We have our context, and this, my little hormones, is the story of Françoise Rocourt. Act one, a talented young whore is born. Now, the heroine of our story was born March 3rd, 1756, which means, uh, I think I have her. She's an Aries. She's an Aries. No, no, she's a Pisces. Pisces. She's a Pisces. So I, I got her I got her chart done on CoStar. In this room, you shall discover if you possess the sight. <laughs> and it says that she existed on a chaotic plane of the divine that is not at all material. Her rich imagination endowed her with a strong intuition for hidden emotional currents. When she takes took offense, it was deeply. And she wasn't necessarily interested in reconciliation. Now, this is actually quite accurate because we know this bitch had a lot of fights with a lot of people and people fucked with her. People talked shit about her for her entire career. Françoise Rocourt was actually born Françoise Sosrot, which is a disgusting sounding name, in a very dingy little house on the Rue de la Vieille Boucherie in Paris. So Old Butcher Street in the Quartier Latin. And it's actually now called Rue de la Harpe. And it is right behind Shakespeare and Co. in Paris, if anyone has ever been there. So she was born into a pretty uh, sad impoverished family. Her father was a traveling and often out of work actor. Her mother, Antoinette de la Porte, was from Lorraine, uh, which is in sort of eastern France, if I recall. So Françoise was first generation Parisian, which is chic as fuck. And she often accompanied her parents on her father's traveling theater troupe you know, itinerant vibes, moving around France, playing in uh, playing roles in different plays <laughs> and she so they were a circus act no they're more i think they're more like a traveling kind of um carnies yeah yeah kind of carnies like more theater vibes like they were actually doing they were doing the theater plays so she, and she what kind of yeah what kind of plays were they performing was it like who's afraid of virginia wolf or yes con most know? yeah mostly contemporary work <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to check, you know, or was it, you know, Brutus Caesar or whatever the fuck Shakespeare wrote? Sure, sure. Julius Caesar. It was probably a combination of French classics and more contemporary, you know. Uh, Maybe some Moliere. Mole really pumps my nads. Perhaps, perhaps Moliere, Racine, Corneille. Those are all the classic French playwrights from the 17th century. But she, so back to Françoise, she gets up on stage at the age of 12 or 13 and begins performing. Then, so she, and she has some uh, some star turn in Rouen, which is a pr more provincial city in northern France. But then... Oh my God, that's where our friends are from. Yes. Clarisse and Caroline and Magali. Shout out. Shout out, shout out to Clarisse. She's a lesbian too, so this works. Oh my God, true. She... Françoise gets her first big break at 16 in Paris when she joins the nation's premier theater, the Comédie Française, and performs the role of Dido, who's a tragic heroine, to star-making acclaim in 1772. 
So not Dido who sang, tears come down and fall, <laughs> and sung with Eminem. Yeah, no, go, not that go ahead. one. Okay. Do the full song. Tears come down and wondering why. And and scene. Now. Morning rain rubs up my window. Okay. Sister, sister, remember what we talked about? Keep it quiet. <laughs> Everyone is absolutely obsessed with Françoise because she's very talented and helpfully very beautiful and statuesque. She's quite tall. She was also apparently a perfect model of virtue. So everyone's obsessed with her because she's like this kind of got this kind of goody two shoes, modest, you know, virginal ingenue vibe. And even King Louis XV, who did not like plays, comes to see her and gets her and helps her get into this, you know, most professional national institution, the Comédie Française, as a regular player, which means she gets an annual salary. Uh, she also gets her own little annual pension from the king, I think. And because of this why, big... Why don't we do things like that anymore? I know. Why don't... Like, I know. Why doesn't someone pay me to Bring back make monarchy. This Bring back monarchy. I would be totally down. I would like, it's fine. I would have sex, be filthy, like wherever they want me to live, not shower, I, no teeth stuff. <laughs> I, I, I would, whatever, as long as I get to wear cool dresses. François asked for much more than, than you would, as we shall soon see. <laughs> the competition for Rocoul's um, how do I say this, vagina, began very quickly because basically actresses were almost like, well, first of all, we all know women are purchasable objects. Of course. So the competition begins because actresses back then are kind of sex workers at the same time. Not always, and there are very many different shades of this, but it's basically understood that if you're a public woman on stage, then you're a public woman in many other ways. So Françoise's father keeps a very close watch on her and sort of helps maintain this myth of her virginal purity because it only drives up the the <laughs> price for her for her poontang. He therefore car carries around pistols and plays the protective father. Meanwhile, he's accepting bribes left and right. Like obviously didn't give a shit about her. He and he's very controlling. He once sees her putting a note from one of her admirers, presumably with a cash offer, into her tits and then makes her untie her whatever thing is, you know, laced up, lacing her bosom up. Corset? Yes, and and so that he can read who the note is from. So he's playing very like controlling dad, father, boyfriend. So Françoise has this whole first year after her, her debut on stage where everyone thinks she's a very modest, chaste, goody two-shoes. And then that illusion is very quickly dispelled by Françoise herself when she... Oh. Well, first of all, there's a rumor that goes around about someone taking her virginity. And then in January of the following year, she signs a literal contract with a marquee that says, you're going to pay me X amount per year in order to buy my pousset. Totally something I'm down for. <laughs> well, the ship has kind of sailed, Lucy. You already gave that card away. I don't know what you mean. I'm a complete virgin. <laughs> right. So effectively, Françoise is becoming a courtesan. And I thought it would be interesting for us to talk a little bit about what it means to be an 18th century courtesan in Paris. 
because with great fame comes great riches and even greater lovers. All kinds of people are trying to buy her favors, as we said. And meanwhile, she is like drawing up these contracts. She's also living incredibly lavishly. She has servants, she has horses, she has her own carriage, which was a huge expense to maintain back in the day. I guess it's like... So she had a rain, white Range Rover? She had, she had a Land Rover Defender. She is... <laughs> Uh, getting 6,000 livres per year. Livres are, is the French word for like pounds, like British pounds. She's getting 6,000 livres per year from this nobleman that she signs the contract with, plus 1,500 livres a month for her household expenses. Damn. Oh, no, but I, I wanted to say for, for like scale, like I think 200 livres or something was like the annual salary of a, a worker. And obviously all of the workers, you know, like laborers people in the working class were paid absolute garbage and they were the only ones who had to pay taxes in 18th century france the church and the Sick. and the aristocracy didn't have to pay taxes what so i know right so she is making <laughs> literally like 30 times that per year and then you know like eight times that per month in addition for her household expenses just from this one guy that doesn't count other stuff that she's she's negotiating so she she also lives in a, a fabulous hotel particulier, which is kind of like a a townhouse, I guess. Um, but mm -hmm. some of them are almost mini apartment buildings uh, in terms of their scale. And then this all too good rags to riches story quickly turns on Mademoiselle Recourt. Because firstly, all of this lavishness starts to turn public opinion against her. So everyone's kind of like, um, bitch, you be spending and clearly you're a whore because where else would you get all of that money? <laughs> Don't hate. And then she's also, it's like, clearly you're a lesbian because people are saying that you're a lesbian. So why, how could you not be a lesbian? And where's our perfect virginal angel that was playing all of these, you know, tragic heroine roles? Um, so basically these rumors start to circulate and then people start attacking her in every way. They start saying she's a terrible actress. She's not even that pretty. Um She's, she is obviously not a dignified woman between the sheets, so how could she possibly play these roles on stage? It's very, um, it's very immediate, and it's a, it's a very precipitous downfall from her initial glory. Got it. So it's like a sort of Meghan Markle meets Britney Spears. No, but I, I do think it's kind of like the, when Miley Cyrus evolved from the Hannah Montana era to you know being like the perfect little uh girl next door kind of, but not in a sexual way whatsoever america's little sweetheart and then she stuck her tongue out of her mouth and everyone was like wow your tongue goes outside your mouth you're a whore and she came in like a wrecking ball i came in like a wrecking ball quite literally so it of course doesn't help matters that Françoise is a flagrant female body investigator. She's obviously <laughs> not above boning boys for a nice new necklace, but her tastes are decidedly vaginal. She splits mm. with the Marquis de Bièvre, this nobleman who had settled this annual pension on her for the rest of her life at the age of 17. Okay, and publicly gives herself over instead to another beautiful lesbianic actress uh, and singer, Sophie Arnoux, who works at the opera. Question. Absolutely. Um, 
she's done all of this by age 17. I know, right? She's literally she's literally 17 years old. It, it's She's a boss ass bitch. It's crazy. And negotiating I, like that and getting that bag? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Molala. Fuck yeah. Right. And I also think it's amazing that she kind of she well obviously she was living in this like very libertine sort of sexually experimental milieu of actors and actresses and mm-hmm. artists and philosophes in Paris and all that like Paris is absolutely the center of the world the cultural world at the, the western bah, world. Oui, and so she there's definitely you know temptation and influence but like to be 17 years old and be like no i'm giving all of the i, I don't care about the money i just want to do gay stuff is uh, fucking amazing so th- i wish you could do that, <laughs> that you, you care about money <laughs> i wish i wasn't so pathetic so <laughs> sophie arnoux is 34 years old so she's exactly two times uh two times the age of uh mrs uh, miss recour at the time but of course this liaison doesn't last very long because mademoiselle recour dumps sophie for sophie's younger ex-girlfriend mademoiselle virginie by 1775, they're calling Recourt the chief priestess of the Lodge of Lesbos. And the tabloids note that she's actually just one of many tribad, which is this old French word for lesbian, comes from the Greek word tribane, meaning to uh, rub. Rub. So I hope I don't need to explain that word anymore, but it basically means she who rubs. So and and these tabloids note that she is just one of many tribad traipsing around Paris at the time. So Lucy, do you want to read this for us? I would, and I would actually like to spend some time on um the word rub. <laughs> The vice of the tribad is becoming very fashionable among our little ladies at the opera. They make no mystery of it and treat this peccadillo with kindness. <laughs> le, le vie, no, that's oh, just that's the, the same thing part. in French because I thought it might be fun to make you try to read it. Do you want to try? Okay. Le vice des tribades devient fort à la mode parmi nos demoiselles d'opéra. Elles ne font point mystère et traitent de gentillesse cette pécadie. pécadie. Mémoire secret. Pécadie. Alex, please use the French version. <laughs> It wasn't bad, was it? Lucy, it was fucking flawlessly edited. <laughs> so this is a very, uh, by the way, the word peccadillo means a little sort of un- un- inconsequential sin. So the language here in this quote, I think, is amazing because for a, a Catholic country like France, the fact that they're referring to lesbianism, lesbianism as nothing more than a little sort of inconsequential matter is incredible. And I think it's also interesting that they talk about it as being à la mode, right? It, they say the, the vice of, of the lesbians is becoming very fashionable among our little ladies of the opera. And mm. it's interesting because people today still talk like this about bisexuality and lesbianism amongst women, right? They, like the Kristen Stewarts, the Cara Delevingne's, the blah, blah, blah. They talk about it almost as a passing phase or something that you do for increased celebrity. So I think it's interesting to note that this this public way of talking about women's sexuality has existed for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, Bash, I got distracted when you said a la mode and I was thinking about pie and a la mode when they put like ice cream on it. It's always food with you, isn't it? Of course it is. What else do I have? Not a husband or any marquee giving me money. I think the other point to make about all of this is that 
this is all part of the sexual revolution. All everything I just said about mm. like what this quote reveals about people's attitudes to lesbianism. So many of the French philosophes and other philosophers in the Enlightenment had started writing about homosexuality as a private vice. Right? They still th they still acknowledge that it's potentially morally undesirable, or in some cases even contrary to nature. But it's a private vice. It has no impact on the public good because this is the century where people start to develop the ideas of personal inalienable rights and sexual behavior is seen as one of them right if you do it privately it doesn't it doesn't hurt anyone so i think that's yeah. that's an interesting thing to note here so even though this was sort of the part of the world history that we are currently in where things are becoming very open and you know there's that sexual revolution as you said this is also where it starts to become like a little bit you know behind closed doors it doesn't matter what you do i think the beginning of it i think that i think in the history of ideas we could trace that to that uh and you know it's not perfect but it is the beginning of an acknowledgement that there is there is such a thing as a private right to sort of behavior. And mm. and that was used for a long time, for example, in Supreme Court cases about homosexuality or, or sodomy in the 20th century. People arguing that whatever happens behind closed doors is nobody's business but the people involved. Don't ask, don't tell. Right. Right. It's not where we it's not where the culture is at now, but it it was used as a way to to advance gay rights for a long time. But back to back to the rich prostitution whore actress in Paris. <laughs> now, all of this living large is also happening on fucking credit cards found my character because being a hot wow. young actress courtesan whore also means that people will loan you money easily right they assume a rich sop won't be far behind you with all of the money to underwrite everything that you're borrowing so mademoiselle lives in a never-ending flow of furs jewels books which were very expensive back then dresses and beautiful works of art by June 1776, Mademoiselle Rocourt is fucking bankrupt. Found your character, Lucy. Oh. And riddled with debts, <laughs> totaling over 100 times her annual income. Mademoiselle is, in fact, kicked out of the Comédie Française at this time for her behavior and plummeting reputation. Which is pretty funny because for a bunch of actors in the 18th century to tell you you're too low class for them is kind of like if the Real Housewives of New Jersey said you were too loud to come to a reunion episode. Like, <laughs> you f Wow. It is rough. So this is a pretty humiliating moment for what's-her-face, um, Mademoiselle Rocourt also known as What's Her Face, she takes refuge in her bankruptcy in what's called the the l'enclos du temple, which is a sort of haven in Paris for bankrupt bitches. And there she meets a Madame Souk, who is this pretty German blonde woman known for her loose morals and her run-ins with the bankruptcy police and, the, and other vice squads in Paris. And her really wonderful, diverse marketplace. Uh... Oh, souk. souk. Yes, of course. The Arab word for marketplace. It's just like you're like, I, I just don't think your intelligence is matching mine anymore. And I don't think this podcast is going to work if you're not able to keep up with me. You know what I mean? Right. Let's ask the listeners if they agree. 
Listeners, please write in. So Madame Souk and Françoise flee Paris up north to try their luck with all the you know, princelings and noblemen in the courts up there in Belgium and the Netherlands. But they're soon back in Paris. And by 1777, Rocourt is in prison, but only has to stay a few hours because fucking literal queen Marie Antoinette sends for her to be liberated. She says she's willing to pay Rocourt's debts of 200,000 livres, which is roughly 30 times what her, well, no, exactly, 30 times what her boyfriend, the Marquis, had been paying her to live on per year. By November 1777, though, she's back in so much drama with her creditors that she has to flee with Madame Souk again. And this time she goes to the Austrian Netherlands, the the part of the Netherlands owned by the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time. Of course. Actually owned by Marie Antoinette. The Habsburgs? The Habsburgs, exactly. Owned by Marie Antoinette's mamacita. So up there, they meet a prince who will keep them in the fashion to which they've become accustomed. And then they go ahead and pay him back by getting arrested in Hamburg, Germany, for forging the equivalent of traveler's checks in his name. Um, And he eventually... Why has no one made a movie about this? This is like, catch me if you can, guy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it, it's also kind of giving me Melissa McCarthy identity thief. <laughs> <laughs> that that is better. And um, and okay, so he they get bailed out in Germany by this German prince or whatever, and then we have not one idea what happened to them for like two full years until they return in Paris in 1779 for a triumphant, royally assured return to the theater. Mm, intrigue. Act Two, The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow. Now, keep in mind that by 1779, Mademoiselle is only 23 years old, running around with men buying her all these beautiful things and then charging her credit cards until she has to literally flee the country at the age of 23 (laughs) years old. But now... In August 1779, by the order of Queen Marie-Antoinette, who was herself believed to be a member of the Lodge of Lesbos, Recourt makes her return to the Comédie Française, against, again, all the wishes of the actors, who are like, no, she, she's a hoe. She reappears in the role of Dido, one of her initial roles, and while some of the audience hisses at her, literally hisses, her ex-girlfriend Sophie makes sure that there's a cabal of tribad, of 18th century French lesbians, in the audience to applaud their friend's return. That's, I mean, yeah, that's a nice supportive group of lesbians. Right exactly. There. And that's, you know, no one supports like lesbians, like queer no. women, queer women do everything. So over the next couple of years, in the early 1780s, Recourt starts playing pretty much exclusively tragic roles to try to kind of rebrand herself and get the respect of her fellow actors and the public. And this PR repositioning kind of works. Until in 1782, Recourt goes full butch and launches her own play that she wrote, which is a gender-bending farce, where she takes up a very common theme in 18th century lesbianism and literature, which is women cross-dressing in the army. So Recourt plays Mm. the Comtesse de Salzburg in the play, who is this romantically challenged noblewoman who dresses up as a soldier to go after a Prussian colonel that she's fallen in love with. 
Jesus. The play is a flop, but her critics do remark how well suited to the role Rocourt is. One even says that she looks infinitely better as a man than a woman. And in real life, we know wow. that Rocourt loved to drag it up. And she regularly went out with all of her lady friends in gentlemen's clothes when she was sort of playing the butch top. Oh, wow. That's like when Princess Diana went out with Freddie Mercury to, I'm pretty, what was that? Was <laughs> and and Princess Diana was the top. No, yeah. She like dressed up as a, a dude. It's like a famous thing that she went out and because oh, she I d- I've couldn't never heard of go out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because you don't watch books. <laughs> I've never watched one single book from the 20th century. Um, But another thing I'm finding very funny is that she has uh, fallen from the beautiful virginal in demand, you know, thing to some of course. basically street rat whore who uh, is also butch. <laughs> so I find that interesting. Well, yeah, it's also kind of empowering, though. Like she she just doesn't give a no. fuck. Like she keeps she's working steadily um, from the moment that she gets back, I guess, because she has the backing of Marie Antoinette. So people can't really fuck with her. So this brazen lesbianism fuels the gossip rags of the times. And it becomes reported in a lot of them that Mademoiselle Recourt is actually the alpha lesbian predator at the top of this food chain, this secret society. That is slowly establishing itself in Paris, where older lesbians are bringing up all of these younger lesbians and sort of um, pinkwashing them into their secret gay club. One writer, this guy named Pidensa de Merobert, who is actually the royal censor, he, he decides what gets published and what doesn't, helps establish that reputation for, that reputation for Mademoiselle Rocourt when he depicts her as a character in a work called La Nouvelle Sappho. Published in the 1780s, La Nouvelle Sappho is basically is supposedly based on a speech, or part of it is based on a speech that Françoise delivered to her secret society of lesbian acolytes called La Secte des Anandrines. So you remember we talked about the word Anandrine, which basically mm. means like the women, the the women's man hater sect, and. In it, it's it gets quite it's like erotic fiction, basically. It gets quite graphic about this young girl named Sappho mm-hmm. who comes to the lesbian secret society and gets introduced to Mademoiselle Rocourt and has sex with a guy dressed up as a girl and then has sex with an older woman and all of this, you know, very titillating erotic propaganda. Yeah, is it still in print? Is it still uh <laughs> Do you, still available? Y'all got a copy? <laughs> y'all got a copy with you? The whole thing is actually very voyeuristic, so it's obviously written more for a male audience but I think what's interesting about it is that it kind of tells it it kind of shows how fascinated men were by lesbians and specifically by this fantasy that there was kind of a that they were there's kind of like a FOMO element to it like they're being left out of something because it's a women only you know behavior identity community um, wow, it's interesting how men have literally not changed. Not, it's, it's, n- never. They have not evolved. That's, that's what we learn wow. by studying history. Men do not evolve. Yep. E- so even if there is no secret lesbian society, and reader, I do prefer to believe that there was one. The rumors obviously have to be based on something, right? Like that's perceived as real. Otherwise, this wouldn't this fiction wouldn't have really worked as well because all of this was basically presented as 
kind of in a journalistic way almost like people know that it's gossip but do you know what i mean it's kind of bridgerton in that way like people are not coming out with this and being like oh this is an erotic novella that i wrote it's like no they're, they're trying to uh push this as a primary source and basically i think what's what's so fascinating about it is that it reveals that lesbians have as as they still are to to many men today to many hetero cis men especially lesbians are considered a threat to male power because they renounce mm. these attachments, these sexual attachments to men, which men believe means they renounce their power over them in a way. Um, and it's so fragile, so fragile and, they are, the men. And if you're keeping all of this lesbian lady loving behavior private in a secret society, how can men effectively control it? You know, there's a very patriarchal mm. element to this as well. So it's a super fascinating uh, thing, even if it wasn't actually a, uh, a primary source at, at that, you know, even if Mademoiselle Rocourt's words in it didn't actually fall out of her damn mouth. Now. 1789, the revolution hits. The real one this time, not a fun sexual one. After a group of women protest before the Palace of Versailles, asking for bread, the Bastille is stormed in 1789, and the French Revolution begins in earnest. As a known royal brown noser, Recourt is in trouble when the revolutionaries come to power. She's eventually imprisoned with a bunch of other prominent actors from the Comédie Française, and is only freed, actually, because of one of her admirers who has friends in the revolutionary government. But before that, she tries to keep her acting career afloat. The public sees her appear in a series of satirical pamphlets that are published in 1790 to 1791, known today as Les Enfants de Sodom à l'Assemblée Nationale, the Children of Sodom at the National Assembly. These satirical petitions follow all of these imaginary speakers who basically are lobbying the new revolutionary government for the rights of queer people, of the sodomites, of the tribad, of assorted enculeurs, a.k.a. fuckers, of people who fuck, and, and the plain old putain, the hookers. So one of the orders in this spoof pamphlet is Mademoiselle Rocourt herself. So you can see what a huge reputation she had. People could use her as a character in all of their in all of their works. Speaking to her audience from this in this pamphlet from the stage of the Comédie Française, she persuades them to side with the sodomites and make sure that women's lesbianic rights to get off with one another are protected by the government. And she has this whole funny diatribe awesome. where she goes and she's like, women should never, me, neither me nor my followers should have to be submitted to ordinary fucking, aka la foutrie ordinaire. By which she means, of course, terrifyingly normal, banal, heterosexual sex. Honestly? So all of yeah. these, the children of Sodom and Mademoiselle Rocourt's big, like, no ordinary fucking for me speech are essentially parodies of revolutionary leaders who are who are sort of trying to go too far in some satir satirists' minds and philosophize away centuries of French social, cultural tradition, moral traditions in this campaign against the Ancien Régime, the, the old regime that they've toppled. So that said, despite the satire, some of these new ideas make it through into law. And when there's a new code penned in 1791 by the revolutionary government, they conspicuously do not criminalize sodomy or lesbianism. 
And France becomes famous for that in the 19th century for being a haven for uh, queer people in some senses because sodomy is decriminalized. So they just like took the Eurostar over and they were like, okay, let's go do some sodomy in Paris. And then they would go back. Just like today. So eventually Rocourt is imprisoned, like I said, in 1793, while the reign of terror is in full swing, this extremely violent phase of the revolution takes over Paris and in fact beheads Rocourt's old protector and fellow labia liquor, apparently, Queen Marie-Antoinette. However, Rocourt is busy in prison making new friends and new lovers. She meets Marie-Henriette Simonot-Ponty, aka Madame de Ponty, who's kind of posing as an aristocrat, uh, in pr- Madame Conti. Madame Conti in her in prison. So she's, I guess her <laughs> orange is the new black sort of prison girlfriend. <laughs> and she also meets the future Empress Josephine, who will become the first wife of Napoleon Bonaparte. But back back to our tale, which is co- going to come to an end soon, I promise. When she gets uh, when she gets out, when, <laughs> when she gets out of the clink, Mademoiselle Rocourt starts a new Théâtre Français that's sort of, you know, because the Comédie Française has been shut down by now as a kind of vestige of the of the royal era. But it's shut down by the Directoire, the, the Directory, which is one of the French revolutionary governments. Meanwhile, in 1796, her father commits suicide, uh, apparently because he, he uh, would rather die by suicide than by dying of hunger. Same, honestly. <laughs> Um, so France, though, is obviously not in good shape. And that and I think that is actually when Napoleon kind of um, takes takes control. He becomes uh, the first consul of the Republican government and eventually helps restore the Comédie Française in 1799. Because, you know, who needs bread? Who needs food when you have I a mean, theater? priorities in France. And La Rocourt is asked to helm the new Comédie Française, the, the relaunched Comédie Française. So she's soon leading her old cronies, all the people who hated her, <laughs> in tragedies and comedies uh, once more. She's now 43 by this time. So she's playing lots of, you know, mothers and queens on stage um, with her trademark verve. And and people like her, but then also sort of five seconds later start to say that she's ugly and fat. So, you know, she just can't win with the public. This is reminding me of that episode of 30 Rock where Jenna is, uh, she's auditioning for like a Gossip Girl style TV show and all of a sudden she realizes that they want her to play the mother oh and yes she has, very like, that her big debut as a mother and everyone's like oh my god you're wonderful <laughs> um so it's very that's where my brain's going yeah no it's very that I mean there comes a, a point in every actress's life when they have to transition into motherhood whether they have children or not so like I said Napoleon arrives by this time with his giant chode sorry code and he is a big fan of La Rugmunching Recours. So he engineers this return to the Comédie Française. He also sa- settles her with a fat annual pension and even entrusts her with the tutelage, the theatrical tutelage of one of his protégés, Mademoiselle Georges. So Recours has kind of come full circle now because there's basically this sort of fake royal in power who's once again protecting her. And she's friends with Josephine, so uh, Napoleon's wife. So she's got an in there. And she's also uh, grooming Mademoiselle Georges for this high position as a courtesan slash mistress to Napoleon and his brother, Lucien Bonaparte. So she's this is very like Karen Walker also like she's just recreated herself multiple times. She's a little bit of a con artist, it seems. Absolutely. She 
she remakes herself. It's really it's quite impressive. She does like a good like a good pop star. She reinvents herself constantly. Yeah. So around the time of the first empire in 1804, when Napoleon suddenly becomes emperor of France, Rocourt is approaching 50 and has built a cushy little life for herself. She has a castle that she bought in her prison girlfriend's name so that her creditors wouldn't know that it was one of her assets. She spends her time there in the spring and summer grooming young actresses to become whores <laughs> and tending her plants. Empress Josephine is visiting her. She's procuring mistresses for Napoleon. Life could be worse. It actually does get worse briefly because Napoleon sends Recours to Italy to do a little cultural imperialism for him after he invades that country and becomes uh, king of Italy. And and she he basically sends her to sort of export French theater to the Italians, uh, because obviously nothing takes the sting out of conquest like theater. Just like you don't need food, you don't need your own na- nation, you just need French theater. So in Italy, Rocourt's performances are not well received. She's apparently not hot at all. Everyone also knows she's a lesbian and a slut. She's gotten a bit pudgy. (laughs) She has rosacea. And her performances are once again suffering as a result of all of these unfortunate physiological changes. So she's basically a tasteless, hideous old woman. Honestly, physically, it sounds a bit like dad. (laughs) Wow, I I hope he is listening. She <laughs> returns back to France a little bit in disgrace and commits to her plan to just fully grow fat in her little chateau, tending her flowers and grooming her little sluts. As every lesbian actress has a right to do, I will add. And uh, but you know she's still in love with her her lady lover. She wrote a letter to her while she was on tour that says, "You are so necessary to my existence that far from you I am nothing but a shadow." Typical over the top lesbian letter. <laughs> she also uh, around this time is getting sick in the 1810s. Napoleon is also like off being a f- fucking buck wild, invading Russia, doing all sorts of dumbass things. And by 1814, he will have fallen. And that's actually when um, Francoise has her last hurrah on stage she plays the role of agrippina the murderous roman empress in racine's britannicus uh to to wide acclaim in 1814 so people are people are like okay she actually is playing this calculating cold bitch really well and in 1815 though her health is shot she's nearly 60 years old and she's also found a religion again which boring it's time to die so she becomes very philanthropic and gives back to all these all the poor people in her parish as well Aww. as to the ter- church and she announces that she's going to retire from the Comédie Française officially on April 1st 1815 but she dies in March quietly with her lover Madame de Ponty at her side in their chic little apartment in the 9th arrondissement in Paris. Did she die um on her birthday in March? Oh, that's such a good question. I think she died right before it. Wait, let me look it up right now. Yeah, you see, Bash, I bring different layers. Oh, I'm this. so sorry. I lied. She she died in January. She died in January. Oh. So she didn't make it. Okay. She didn't make it. <laughs> she didn't make it. She, she didn't make it. it anywhere near there. So, okay. and of course, even in death, Francoise gave us a little scandal because the priest in her neighborhood at the uh, Église Saint-Roche, I think, 
refuses to bury her with a Christian burial because of her ho-ass ways. And a literal street riot breaks out as all of these people, some of whom she probably had given money to, um, in, in her final... Or eaten out. What? Or, or eaten out. Or eaten out. <laughs> or, or openly yeah. eaten out. Um, they break down the doors of the church and demand that Rocourt be buried with customary honors, with Christian, you know, with a, with a good Christian burial. And it becomes, the situation becomes so serious that the, the newly restored monarchs, because by this point, again, uh, Napoleon has fallen, the newly restored Bourbon monarchs have to acquiesce and they order that the, the church give her a Christian burial. And then she's finally laid to rest in Père Lachaise Cemetery, where all the great dead Parisians reside. Act three. Does anyone care? Now, we come to the final, well, penultimate segment of our podcast, where we ask, does Lucy care? Lucy being a straight cis woman who cares about very little to be honest and she's obviously our target audience with this queer history podcast but first mm. i thought it would be fun if we started doing a little pop quiz at the end to see if you were actually listening so we'll start easy and we'll get progressively harder oh shit okay which came first napoleon or the french revolution the french revolution okay yes well done Thanks. In what year did Marie Antoinette's head absolutely slay? AKA, when did they cut it the fuck off? Like 1791 or something? Whoa, that was close. That was close. 1793. Okay. Well done. Okay. All right. Okay. You get, I think you get half credit for that. And final question What was the 18th century word for a, le- for a lesbian in France? Yes, well done. Wow, this podcast is working. Okay, and for extra credit, what is the ancient Greek word that it comes from and what does it mean? Oh, something with an A. And it means some like no man, no No, man. That's another one. That's Anandrine. Tribad comes from? Trifling. (laughs) It comes from the ancient Greek tribane, which means to rub. Tribades in ancient Greek, tribades means uh, she who rubs. Right. Okay. So what do you think, Lucy? That was actually pretty good. I feel like you retained from that. So I'm impressed. Well done. Thank you. Now, let's talk about whether or not you care. Do you? You know what, Bash? Listen, I care because I feel like there are a lot of lessons here that I will take away mm. on how to be a con artist woman, um, which I think is pretty much all I have left for me since, you know, I can't bear children anymore. Um, and, <laughs> and you're 30. And you're 30. Start, so you're, you're on 30. death's door. Yeah. I'm going to have to start figuring out like how I get people to give me money and how I make like multiple, multiple comebacks. Cause you know, once this, this podcast um, tanks, w- what am I going to do? So you do care um, about this 18th century um, lesbian con artist because she's basically provided a roadmap for you for the rest of your life. Yeah, pretty much. A ro- I, this is the first time I have not been afraid of map. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you heard it here first. Lucy actually does care. I'd like to close with a straight apology. It's a straight apology. Now, this is the segment where we talk about, because 
we talk a lot about queer people on this podcast. I want to make sure that we represent straight people. And we always like to bring up a heterosexual from history who's done something really, truly heinous, um, proving the superiority of queer people in in history and, and all of human civilization. This story that I have today is absolutely crazy and something I didn't know about. And I, I wanted to tell it in honor of uh, our previous Indigenous Peoples episode. So I'm reading a book right now about the history of addiction called The Urge. Check it out. And one of the stories they tell is about white people using alcohol in the early colonial American days as a way to divide and conquer indigenous people by getting them to be alcoholics. So, and there was one white heterosexual man in the stolen land that we now call Connecticut um, who has a particularly foul story of using this racist association of native peoples with alcohol abuse to his benefit. It all starts when this nice and cute native boy named Samson Occam, uh, who is a bright young man from the Mohegan tribe, convinces Reverend Eliezer Wheelock to take him on as a pupil. So Occam excels, and Wheelock eventually sends him over to England and Ireland, and he goes on a fundraising tour for a school that Reverend, Reverend Wheelock is going to found for indigenous children, or so he says. Meanwhile, the Mohegans and many other Northeastern native peoples continue to succumb to alcoholism. And when Occam returns, he's like, what the fuck? Like, you haven't taken care of anything to, to Reverend Wheelock. He's like, you haven't taken care of my family. You're a total asshole. Like, you're not doing anything about the alcohol problem. And Occam kind of makes a name for himself as being a, a public advocate for, uh, you know, uh, anti-alcoholism. And he also has raised in England and Ireland the equivalent of millions of dollars in today's money. And Wheelock takes it from him. And instead of using it to found a school uh, for indigenous children, he uses it to establish a school for English children, which would eventually grow into Dartmouth College, <gasps> all while smearing Occam's name by accusing him of being nothing more than a native drunk. So, oh my God, Lucy, what do you, as a straight person, have to say for this paragon of heterosexual crookery? Wow, I am. I'm sorry for the entire American school system. Dart Dartmouth College, College should literally only take indigenous applicants moving forward. That's fucking wild. Isn't that insane? Like straight white people, man. Why is man, it still allowed? Straight white people ruin everything. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for apologizing for your kind. And thank you all, our historical hormones, for joining mm -hmm. us this week. I'm sorry about all the French accents, but hey, got to do what you got to do. Faut faire ce qu'il faut faire, hein? <laughs> If you like what you hear, give us a little five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Yes. That's right. Do it. Yes. Just like that. Mommy likes when you listen. And follow us at historical.homos on Instagram and at historicalhomos on TikTok. Blah, blah, blah. Yada, 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 yada. Boof. Love you. Je t'aime. Love you. Mwah. Mwah, mwah.